Hello and welcome back to Proofing and Lies. I'm Elle Rochford, amateur baker, professional sociologist. And I'm Andrew Shriver. I'm a public defender in Northeast Ohio. And this week we are taking it uh, a little bit away from current events, back to the ancient world. Yeah, no, this is a very exciting episode. Um, it's one I'm sorry that I was not able to be at the interview for, um, but I'm very much, very much excited about the finished product. Yeah, I was sad you weren't there as well, because I think you would have nerded out about this. So we talked to Nadira Hill about her work as an archaeologist studying ancient Greek drinking culture. It's, uh, it's fascinating stuff. She, uh, she's wonderful. And she introduced us to a uh, brand new recipe, right? Yeah, well, a very old recipe, well, even. right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I asked her for her recommendations of what are some ancient recipes that we could try to make uh, today, and she was lovely and sent me this whole list uh, that you can find at the British Museum uh, website. In general, as someone who is Irish-American, not a huge fan of the British, <laughs> uh, but the British Museum has some interesting resources, and this was really cool. It walks you through a whole like feast, like a whole several-course meal mm. of uh, ancient Greece. So we did a honeyed ricotta cake, which I misidentified as a cheesecake because cheese is the main ingredient. Ricotta is the main ingredient. Uh, we ended up unable to find ricotta. Yeah. Yeah, we went to uh, several different stores, couldn't find ricotta. We had, we substituted cottage cheese, um, which is not quite the same. Yeah, uh, it's not as smooth and we couldn't beat it as smoothly. Right. We are suspicious that this might have been a supply chain issue. So if you're interested in learning more about the supply chain, <laughs> we also have an episode about that. Uh, check out that episode with Matthew Hockenberry, where we talk about the supply chain issues. We went to two different stores, no ricotta. You would yeah. think that was a staple cheese. I love a ricotta. Yeah, well, it was weird. One of the places like had burrata and stuff like that, like really weird, not weird, but like more niche stuff um, and no ricotta, which like, you know, you put in lasagnas and stuff. But um, I make a nice ricotta gnocchi. Yeah, yeah. But in, in any event, we made it with the uh, with the cottage cheese. It was, yeah, it was a little more bready than I anticipated. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about this. It was more savory than I thought, but I think that's just because I'm now used to, like, processed sugar in literally all food that I eat. Yeah. Um, so, so something that's, like, just flour, egg, and cheese with some honey uh, is, like, nothing to me anymore. I'm, like... And I, I think the ricotta might have lent more of a like a sweetness to it yeah. than the cottage cheese. I don't eat that much processed food and I was vegan for a while and I think that like reset my palate because I get overloaded on sugar really, really quickly. Mm -hmm. So to me, it was kind of the perfect level of sweet that I like. Well, I, I like most Americans, uh, have become like, like a heroin addict who's gone too far. Um, and so this is, is an interesting, it's, it's like that tweet, you know, if you showed a, a, or what was it? The, the average American now, um, eats more nacho cheese flavor than a 1600s peasant would achieve in a lifetime or whatever. That's how I feel with all this. this is like, oh this is probably, gosh. it was good. I understand like it's simple. There's a little bay leaf in the bottom that kind of frames really nicely. I um, guess, yeah, we should go back and explain yeah, yeah, yeah. what we actually made, yeah. which is you, you mix in an egg to your cheese, which you whisk smooth, and then you add in fl uh, flour, like a couple uh, tablespoons at a time, and you make a really soft, sticky dough. And then you uh, grease a baking sheet and you put down bay leaves. And then you drop your little balls of dough on top of the bay leaves. So the end result is is really a beautiful, sweet yeah. bread. I Honestly, I think this would be great for brunches. Yes. It's It's got kind of a breakfasty feel. It's sweet, but it's not too sweet. And yeah. because we use the cottage cheese, it's got some great uh, protein count in there. So honestly, it would be a great like grab and go breakfast little scone. Mm -hmm. I was just say I think if you're if you're serving you know this at, at a brunch restaurant with like a poached egg and some pork belly or something, you're gonna make a million dollars. But yeah, on it, on its own, it, right? It was a little under under sweet for me, but I you know your your mileage may vary. Yeah. Um, but the texture was kind of nice. I think it would have been better with ricotta, but. Yeah, it was a nice airy sort of 
doughiness. Well, and I like that it was really simple. There's very few ingredients. This would be honestly a great project to do with kids who are just learning to cook and bake because it's a really forgiving recipe. And if you have kids, like I have baby cousins who now are teenagers, but they had a huge like Greek God phase where they were obsessed with all of the different Greek mythology stories. And so I bet they would love to do a project like this. Yeah, And the, the bread ended up being really sweet. And there was just that hint of the like herbiness from the bay leaf. Mm -hmm. And if you wanted to get fancy with your honey, you know, I, I love a hot honey. So if Mm. you wanted to go like a more savory route with this, like a hot honey and the bay leaf, like, it could be a really good yeah. and versatile brunch bread. Yeah. Because uh, it's a no no rise. It's honestly, I think we could play with this and have a lot of fun. No, right. Well, now I was going to say, because I bet you could put a, at least some, like you could put like chopped peppers or jalapenos or something. Some chives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, I bet you could put a bunch of stuff in this and, you know, change the, uh, the topping, the honey, the whatever. Yeah. Uh, to go along with it. I want to say thank you to all of our new listeners um yeah so we're famous oh we're that's a big we're (laughs) uh so i wrote a tweet uh some of our listeners probably don't know this our new listeners will know this because this is what what brought you to the pod uh but i wrote a tweet that blew up which was hilarious because i only have about 400 well at the time i made the tweet i had about 400 followers uh so it was wild that it wound up on the Mary Sue uh, on a list on the Mary Sue website uh so I'm a little bit famous now I'm thinking about replacing Andrew with someone like with a little more star power um so tweet at us with suggestions (laughs) I'm obviously too big for this now so no naturally no that was really cool It it was a neat event so if you're joining us because of that welcome uh happy to have you if you have any ideas for episodes or anyone that you think we should interview, feel free to uh, DM us on Twitter uh, or Instagram. You know, hit us up. We'll be, uh, we're always receptive to new ideas. You can find pictures of our bakes either on Instagram at Proofing and Lies or on Twitter, Proofing capital L. Uh, so Proofing L or uh, Proofing and Lies. Uh, we'll post pictures of our bread this week. I, I guess cake. They, they call yeah. it a cake. Uh, and it is a typical cake that you would have eaten at an ancient Greek symposium. Yeah. Uh, which is a little bit of what we talk about with Nadira Hill. We also talk about what it's like to be black and studying the classics. Studying the classics is stereotyped as being predominantly white, predominantly male. And there are people doing groundbreaking work people of color and women doing great work in the classics, but often their work is overlooked or marginalized. And so she has an entire blog about what it's like to be a person of color studying the classics. Uh, So be sure to check out her website and her blog. Uh, She's doing some cool work. Yeah. No, I'm very excited. Thank you to uh, Riley for filling in for me. Um, I was very sorry to miss this one. And yeah, welcome everybody and enjoy. Hello, and welcome back to Proofing and Lies. I am here with Nadira Hill, who is a PhD candidate at the University of Michigan, studying uh, classical Greece, the ceramic production and drinking and dining culture, which is very apt for this podcast. Uh, She also was awarded the 2021 Public Scholarship Award by the Women's Classical Caucus. How are you doing today? I'm I'm doing good. Um, Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. I'm, I'm really excited to talk both about your work and you also run a blog about um, your experiences in academia. So before we, we get into kind of the blog work, can you tell me a little bit about your research? Sure. So like you said, I, I study like ancient Greek dining and drinking culture and ceramic production. And recently I've been thinking a lot about the Greek symposium, um, which is a, a big part of my dissertation, um, which I've been working on for the past couple of years. And the Greek symposium um, literally means drinking together, but it's usually translated as a drinking party. So more specifically, um, the symposium was a night of drinking where men reclined on couches in a highly decorated room of the house called the Andron. 
it is believed to have taken place after dinner, but images on vases sometimes depict small amounts of food or snacks, um, like the stuff that you uh, have been baking and um, and tried your hand at baking for this podcast. And I'm I'm a very visual person, so this is going to be kind of weird where I'll probably be describing a lot of vases, but that's a, a big part of what I, um, I'm working on. And the symposium um, in particular appears on a lot of um, fifth and fourth century vases. So yeah, uh, that's that's pretty much the the gist of of my research, and I I'm trying to work towards kind of broadening our understanding of Greek drinking practices because the symposium is is usually the like main thing that people um, know about Greek drinking and, and dining. It's the you know the reclined banquet um, that most people have either seen or or heard about um, when they think about drinking um, or dining in in Greece, and I want to kind of expand um, on that idea. Man, in college at one point, I used to know the name about a, of, of like a dozen different drinking vessels because I, I had an art history minor. And I am ashamed to say I, I don't really remember any except maybe that is the Kyrex something, the Ky- Kyrex? Yeah, the, the Kylix. Yeah. Okay. I, that, I was like, that's either a DJ or a vessel. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it actually the, the Kylix, um, or it's, it's a shallow stemmed, um, cup that has like two little, um, little handles. I'm like demonstrating, but you can't see me, but, um, but, um, but it's a, a tall, like a, a shallow, um, stemmed cup that, um, is usually associated with, with the drinking party, um, the symposium. So it, it's interesting that, that that's the, the cup that, you know, um, but of course there are, as we have today, um, lots of different types of drinking cups and also cup, you know, vessels for eating and mixing, um, wine and, and various different purposes. Well, I'm really proud that that I got one. Um, <laughs> maybe the popular understanding of the Greek drinking culture is just that they were constantly drinking wine and like a little maybe tipsy a lot. Is that kind of an accurate sense of of the drinking culture, or is that maybe? Yeah. Um, so I think I think it kind of depends on the sources that you're looking at. Um, and because obviously we, we ourselves in the modern day do not know, um, exactly what was going on in the ancient world. Um, so a lot of the information that we get are, um, like I already mentioned from images and also from the texts, um, that we have surviving. Um, and, uh, the texts I think are really useful because they do give us an image of, of what happened um, at drinking parties, even, even if they're a little bit biased because most of the texts we have are written by, by elite men. Um, and so it's only, you know, one perspective um, on the evening, but generally we can, we can identify some trends and, and one of those kind of trends are discussions of, of like the appropriate amount of intoxication or the appropriate amount of drink. Um, So I mentioned before that we have um, some vessels for mixing, mixing wine in particular, and that was a really um, important like aspect of Greek culture um, was that they mixed their wine with some ratio of water, which um, they really, really believed set them apart from non-Greeks, um, people from other cultures. Um, they would, and especially in the text, would refer to people from other cultures as um, as people who drank their wine neat. Um, so like as we would drink it today, um, you know, you just pour a glass of wine and then you would drink it. But in, in the Greek world, um, they would use a big mixing bowl um, called a crater where they would have different ratios depending on the night, depending on the person hosting would mix their wine with water. And there are other, in the text, there are other kind of discussions of the appropriateness of, of how drunk you might might get in an evening um, of drinking, especially at the symposium. And actually one um, really kind of fun reference to it is in the symposium by Plato, who was an early fourth century Athenian philosopher who wrote an entire play on the symposium uh, or dialogue um, on the symposium. And uh, in that in that dialogue, um, and Plato is also known for, you know, writing a lot of dialogues that feature Socrates, um, who is probably a person that a lot of people have heard of. In that, in the symposium by Plato, uh, Socrates attends a drinking party at the house of his friend Agathon. And what I find kind of ironic is that although it's called the symposium, which 
is translated to drinking party. They don't really do much drinking at this party because of they got too drunk the night before and they they decided collectively not to to drink very much that evening. Um, and you know, so the basically the whole dialogue is just focused on uh, competitive speech making. They're trying all of the attendee or most of the attendees are, you know, giving different speeches on love um, and love and desire. And so that's kind of the main focus of the evening. But then towards the end, we also have kind of an interloper, um, Alcibiades, who comes in and he's, you know, coming like kind of heavily intoxicated and he's trying to encourage everyone to drink more. Um, so there, there's a clear contrast there. Um, and this appears in, in a lot of different texts and also different genres. Um, for example, in comedies, you see more of, uh, more of the drunken behavior, but in, in the, the, uh, dialogues, philosophical kind of texts, you, you see a little bit more, um, emphasis on the, the more, controlled behavior and and more emphasis on not drinking uh, a whole lot. That is funny to think of. We have these records of, um, you know, drunken interlopers and hangovers. And I'm, I'm trying to imagine competitive speech making while slightly hungover. And I can't say that it sounds very fun. So I guess I'm curious what your field work is like. What is your day-to-day as an archaeologist? Because that's a very cool job. I would say mm-hmm. people think it's a cool job. Yeah, I mean, I think it's cool. And I, I um, when I first started doing archaeology in undergrad, um, like one of the first things that my mom would ask was, is there like, is there really anything else that you can find? Like, hasn't it all been found? And especially at that point, I was working in Athens and Athens is like, very, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that has been uncovered in Athens. So it kind of feels like everything has been uncovered, but actually um, that's not the case Uh, in Athens in particular, like a lot of that, like the ancient stuff is not actually uncovered because there are a lot of modern buildings, right? So there has been a lot of like a very long process of getting permission from the Greek government and getting permission from the people that own those buildings to tear them down. And so that's when you, when you go to Athens today, like, especially the the main city, um, city center, the Agora, is an area where a lot of modern buildings had to be taken down in the the 1970s and on. I don't know how many um, are are being removed today because it, it probably takes a lot of time and a lot of like logistics and and legal issues. But that is something that that does happen with modern archaeology. Um, but uh, the site that I mostly work at is um, in northern Greece at the site of Olynthos, which is a much smaller um, village and nothing, none of the modern buildings had to be removed for that. It is on this on a hilltop site. So it's it's basically like, I'd say a 30 minute walk from the village where we would stay. And it, it's a, a protected archaeological site. So we um, got permission to or not we, I mean, I, I didn't do it, but you know, the people that, that run the ex- excavation got permission um, to dig there and, and um, had a, a plan, but it had already been excavated in the 1920s and 1930s. The more recent excavations in 2014 to 2019 were kind of building off of what had already been dug there. So we are, or we were, we finished our season, um, our excavation season in 2019 um, uh, looking for a house. So Olynthos is a is pretty well known for its settlement. Um, it's a really well pre- preserved fifth fifth slash fourth century settlement in Greece. We don't have a lot of those, so houses are super super interesting and important. And in particular for me, they're important because you can learn about how people are eating and drinking at home. And I guess <laughs> a day in the life of an archaeologist um, at that site. But I guess in most places, um, we would stay in, in the little village and, and we would wake up pretty early. I think I probably woke up around 6 a.m. every morning, got, had, got dressed, had breakfast, and then I, we would walk as a group to site, um, which would take around 20 to 30 minutes, depending on how fast you walked. Um, and it was kind of nice because you could see the, the sunrise and, and, you know, it, it, it was pleasant and there wasn't there weren't really anybody other, uh, any other people out there, outside at that time. Um, so we'd get to site and I worked on the pottery team. Um, so I didn't have to go up to the site, like where they were excavating, but I, I would help kind of, um, unload the apotheki, um, or the, 
the storage room and and you know get everything organized set up the tables um, if it was the first uh, day of the season we'd set up tables for us to work at and and yeah basically we would we would wash um, any pottery if there was pottery that needed to be washed and it usually we would do that like if there was something really special and delicate that we needed to to wash ourselves or if it was like the end of season and there was a big backlog but usually we wouldn't wash um, as much um, that would be something that like the entire excavation team would do at the end of the day um, there was time set aside for them to actually you know wash the things that they found which is pretty cool because because you know when you pull it out of the ground it's not shiny and, and beautiful usually <laughs> so you have to wash it in order to um, to get to see the the nice things um, so um, related to that um, when they would lay out the pottery to dry um, overnight we would uh, the pottery team members would go and we would look at the screens where their, uh, the pottery was drying and we would kind of, you know, pick out anything that was interesting to like, make a mental note of it or, and we would collect it. We would put it all in, into um, their respective bags with their like labels and then we would sort it and we'd sort it and catalog it and put all the information into a database um, and then we would bag it up more nicely and then put it into its respective crate in the um in the storage room and that's basically like our whole day we would work I think until like 3 p.m um and then we would walk home and we'd usually have dinner together and yeah so I mean it it seems like a lot but it, it really like goes by really fast um and I I love kind of the the puzzle aspect of of pottery um, and and looking at pottery and trying to figure out like what goes together or trying to figure out what shape you're looking at or if there's decoration on the the pottery shirts uh, that's also really cool because then you can like flip through the books and like try to find um, like publications that have already been published and you can kind of find parallels and try to figure out like what the image probably was so that's why I really really like pottery but I also like the whole things too but you know it's kind of more of a, a fun puzzle when you're in the field so are there certain like local potters that you'd be able to like tell like oh this is definitely you know from this shop or that shop or is it or or is pottery so ubiquitous that there's just too many to, to track them like that. So we don't know as much um, about the pottery workshops in Olynthos. Um, I think there is, there has been some discussion of kind of an Olynthian workshop that is producing local things. And actually the original idea I had for my dissertation was to only focus um, on that workshop and like try to figure out like what's local like what's a local product and what isn't like what's an import but then the pandemic hit and I couldn't go and look at the things um so I, I kind of pivoted and I'm I'm now comparing Athen Athenian pottery and Olynthus um Olynthian pottery um and I think I've always believed that the Olynthian pottery isn't like homogenous enough to be from one workshop I think because um of where Olynthos is situated. It's on a, a peninsula with a lot of other small communities, a lot of other cities that during the fourth century all kind of came together at Olynthos because um, they were, it was, there was a war going on um, during that period. And a lot of people, a lot of the people in those cities felt threatened and they were advised to move to Olynthos because it was more easily fortified. So I originally believed that there were like multiple tradition, like pottery traditions kind of converging at Olynthos, but my my focus now is trying to differentiate between um, imports and then kind of local products more generally. And um, so it's easier, I think, to identify workshops in Athens um, because it's already like, it's been so um, thoroughly researched, the, the pottery um, especially, and there's already been um, identifications of different workshops, like many, many, many workshops, even if it's a workshop of one person, like people have named it. Um, and like the Berlin painter is one workshop that is really well known and has like really identifiable characteristics. But in order to kind of uh, circumvent the the problem of, of not having as much discussion in Olympus uh, or for Olympus uh, workshops, I have been looking more at um, the different 
techniques that are used to say form a vessel, um, attach handles, uh, decorate the surface, stamp. I've been looking at kind of all of the things instead of um, just focusing on iconography on the base painting, which is usually what um, the approach has been for fineware vessels. So, so I've been kind of working my way into making my own kind of categories of, of different workshops and also trying to compare those different designs and techniques um, of production between the two sites to see if there's any in, um, interaction or influence, um, particularly from Athens on onto Olynthos. That's really neat. I'm, I'm a big like art history nerd, so this is very cool. Uh, something that occurred to me while you were talking is that the symposium scenes on the pottery, would those have been like commemorating actual people at all? So would it be like if you hosted a great symposium, would you then get, you know, commission a, a piece of pottery that depicts it? Um, mm -hmm. Or were they all kind of generic or, or would that be something you could even tell? Yeah. So there, we do have some I don't actually know how many, but there have there have been papers and 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 books and and chapters written on um, inscriptions on in um, vase painting. Um, in particular, there are I think quite a few that have um, like what are called Kalos names, um, which are kind of like you know this person is very beautiful, and it's usually a male figure. Um, so sometimes they name um, or. I guess you could say commemorate a, a particular person um, in that way. Um, sometimes we have um, inscriptions that like name deities. So we have like some divine symposia that and all the deities are either named or they're they have attributes that are very clearly Dionysus or um, Hercules or Heracles or Apollo, you know, various various gods um, in the Greek uh, the Greek pantheon and then I think the more generic ones are like they're pretty generic like I I have written pretty much a whole chapter um on iconography of the symposium and it's I have identified in my like a hundred odd examples that I collected um to study of of mostly whole images of the symposium because there are a lot of fragments like I, I mentioned before um, I had tried to get like as complete of a picture to compare with other um, images as possible um, from that survey I I did identify quite a few categories of like different scene types that are they share a lot of the same features like they do seem very generic like there's always you know someone leaning with his like left arm down on a pillow and his right arm is up maybe he's holding a cup maybe he's not but his hand is up um, and there's usually like three or four male figures reclining. There's usually a woman, um, a draped woman playing a double flute right in the middle of the scene to um, separate groups of two on either side. As we get further into the fourth century, it does become either more crowded, there's lots more people um, that are being depicted in the symposium, or they're more elaborate, um, elaborately decorated. Sometimes there are things hanging in the in the background, um, but generally the, the composition is the same. So I think that they're probably not very specific. They probably, it's probably just a scene that they they like to produce during the fifth and fourth century and, and people are just getting them and, and using them maybe at the symposium, but I also have a whole, a whole thing that I could, <laughs> could go into where I don't actually think that most of these images are depicting symposia, because like I said, I'm, I'm trying to think more broadly about um, how we, how we characterize drinking in, in the Greek world. And the symposium is a very specific type of drinking. It's a very formal, it's very rit ritualized. It takes place in a very um, specific type of space with a specific like category of people, elites. So, but then, you know, if we focus all of our energy on, on trying to identify symposia where, you know, what happens outside of this space, um, what happens amongst the people that can't afford to host symposia. And I think there's probably something in the um, iconography that suggests that they're not 
actually depicting a symposium every single time as we understand it. So yeah, so I, <laughs> I have thoughts about that, but, but they're not completely formed. I'm, I'm still kind of trying to figure that out. That's super interesting. And, and part of this podcast is uh, correcting misinformation. So that kind of loops in to the, to our mission statement. So I guess that leads into what kind of misinformation do people have either about the ancient Greeks or um, about archaeology in general? Well, I did. I mean, I mentioned that like there isn't like everything that we can possibly know about the ancient world hasn't been actually found. Um, I think that's probably something that you know people who aren't actively studying um, archaeology, anthropology, classical studies don't realize and and there's still a lot of things that, that, I mean, there's, there are definitely a lot of things that have been, have been discovered and have been talked about, but I think there's always room to build upon um, those things and to refine those things. Like I mentioned before, the site um, of Olynthus was previously excavated. We're just excavating um, a different part of that site that wasn't excavated. And we're trying to really build upon the knowledge that was, um, that was uncovered before. Another thing uh, specifically about the symposium um, that I've I've started to realize is that some of the equipment that we associate with the symposium isn't actually specifically or specific to the symposium. And one of those things is, is the mixing bowl, um, the crater that I mentioned before. The crater is really interesting in that it it does appear in associated with um, the highly decorated dining room that I mentioned um, earlier that we find in houses that usually has, you know, a really nice mosaic and plaster walls that we can still see in the archaeology, um, which, you know, together with a, a really nicely decorated crater um, could suggest that that a formal symposium was taking place there because, you know, they're two really nice things and it's probably not very likely that you would be able to afford both of those things unless, you know, you were very wealthy and, and in which case you were probably having symposia. But actually we have a lot more craters. I think in Athens, more than 700 craters and crater fragments were found um, in Athens, um, you know, in the 1990s alone. And I, I'm sure more have been found <laughs> by now, but many of those were found outside of those contexts outside of the the houses with the decorated androns and especially at Olynthos too I've noticed um, in kind of my research that there are only two out of I think 13 craters that were found in houses with androns so like that really speaks I think to the the broader use context um, of the crater like the crater was probably being used more widely than we assume we assume because it's an you know it has nice nice decoration on it that it was probably um a very wealthy um acquisition and i i don't think that the archaeology is telling us that i think that um like i mentioned before you know all all greeks presumably were mixing their wine with water and you needed a crater to do that on most occasions i'm sure you could probably like have a jug of water and have some wine and then like pour it together in your own cup. But most of the time they were probably using a crater. And one of, one of the most common explanations for there not being a crater in an otherwise like sympotic or, or drinking assemblage that was probably used at a symposium. One of the explanations for a crater not being there has been that it was made of metal and was repurposed um, in antiquity so it doesn't survive. And I think that that's not a sufficient explanation in the cases of people who probably couldn't afford a metal crater because I mean, pottery, pottery that has no decoration on it, probably pretty cheap. Pottery that has decoration on it, probably a little more expensive, but a, but a metal vessel was probably a lot more expensive. And I don't think, you know, with as many, as many pottery assemblages that we have um, surviving that, that have drinking vessels in them, I don't think that there were that many metal craters just kind of floating around in people's houses. Um, so I think that like the ceramic crater is widespread enough um, that it, it was probably being used in, in more contexts than we give it credit for. Um, I don't think it was specifically a symposium vessel. 
Um, so that's something that I would really love to like keep <laughs> keep reiterating, keep shouting from the rooftops because I think it's really interesting and it it currently is like the most exciting um, analysis that I have um, in my in my dissertation. Um, so that's I think another thing that I'd I'd say is is a misconception about um, ancient Greek drinking. That's really exciting. So. I think one of the broader misconceptions about archaeology and the classics is that it is mostly white men. And so I want to make sure we we really talk about your blog. And so I wondered if you could talk about your experience studying ancient Greece and what that's been like. Yeah, I, I honestly don't think I really recognized that I that how not diverse classics was for lack of a better word until I was in I came to grad school really in the last couple of years it's become kind of more um, pronounced and I think a lot of that is is tied to um, the pandemic and especially 2020 um, after you know the deaths of of Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and um, George Floyd and after that I think a lot of academic departments especially classics felt kind of pressure the pressure and they they started to realize that like oh oh no like we are also you know complicit in all of these racist things um that are going on in the world and and white supremacist things i think you know and i i guess i know <laughs> that um classics is really built on um white supremacist foundations and this is something that that's been in conversations on all and on a lot of people's minds um, over the last couple of years, and especially over the last couple of years. I mean, obviously, it's been there for forever. Um, I just don't think that it's been given um, the attention, the serious attention that that it has needed to until really the last couple of years when the pressure has like really felt um, present and immediate uh, for for classics departments to change. And, and I've seen a lot of that on Twitter, especially and on social media. And really all of the, all of that kind of led me to, um, to start thinking about, you know, is, is classics really this homogenous? Like, is it really, you know, is it just me just, you know, the only like black person like in classics that exists. And so I, um, I think, maybe two, uh, well, a year ago, um, it's been a year um, since I started my blog, but um, about a year ago, I, I went on Twitter and I was like, you know, if there's, um, if you are a, a person that identifies as black, indigenous, or a person of color, just reply to this thread. I just want to see like what, like who, who is out there. And I got, um, I think about 60 responses and it was really heartwarming and, and a lot of people really, um, appreciated, you know, the exposure because, you know, no one was, was kind of showing that kind of representation. Um, and I think a lot of people saw it as an opportunity to start reaching out, um, to more people of color, um, in the field and, and giving them platforms to, to, you know, talk about the work, talk about um, issues in the field. Um, so I think it's been a really encouraging experience, I'd say. Uh, and I want to make sure I get the name right. So it, your blog is called Notes from the Apothecary. Is that? Um, <laughs> it's no? uh, Apotheke. Um, and actually, <laughs> the reason why it's called that is, is because my, I, I don't think anyone knows this, but I actually started this blog in the summer of 2020, but no one knew about it. And it was a, it was a blog about ceramics um, and pottery. And so I, I called it notes from the apathy because I, I mentioned before that I'm a part of a pottery team and I work very closely with the apathy or storage room. Apathy is like, is the Greek word for storage, a storage space. So that's, that's where the name came from. And I just didn't like, I, I kind of shut that down um, and capped the name and then just kind of ran with it. And, um, and it has been, that has been the name of the blog. Um, and I think it still kind of works because it has, you know, the archeology span um, connotations and, and classics. So so yeah. <laughs> so you dive into a lot of kind of the hidden curriculum. So could you talk a little bit about that piece of the blog and Sure. Well, basically, I I would say I really one big part of of kind of the the journey, the I guess the approach to 
making classics more anti-racist, um, especially for me um, that I've been really interested in is, is pedagogy and kind of um, the institutional structures that either support or don't support people of color in classics. And one of those things that really resonated with me was the idea that we're not, I mean, generally um, students and academics are not taught um, a lot of things that we just are supposed to know. Um, and I think certainly um, some groups of people are more ad advantaged in that respect. You know, they come from families that, that have, you know, professors or, or academics um, in their family, um, or they have friend, lots of friends who went through the process, um, you know, professors or lecturers or other grad students, right? Like they have a, a good community um, around them that can give them that, that kind of guidance. But I think um, people of color um, in particular are really disadvantaged um, in that respect. I certainly had no point of reference for a lot of things. Um, and so I really, I just took it upon myself to start a series um, of, of blog posts um, once a month where I just talked about something that I had no idea how to do and then like basically taught myself or, or if I had taken, you know, a, a really good workshop or I did a semester long um, dissertation writing workshop um, through, through my university last spring. Um, so like, I just, I kind of have been trying to share as much of that knowledge as possible to kind of make things uh, easier and also keep it all in one place because I feel like that's also um, something that that is that I've noticed is that even if your your university or your program is giving you that information it's usually not very easy to find or you know there's never there's never really a central place for you to find that information so I've been trying to to kind of just share the knowledge and give people, I love to help people. Um, and, and, and I, I thought that this would be a good way to do that. So, um, so hopefully I, I won't run out of any ideas, um, anytime soon. And I, I always am happy to take suggestions, um, on other things that, that people have to do or have to learn how to do, but are never taught, um, how to do those things. That's such a great, I, I love, I, I think I have found in grad school that grad students helping each other has been kind of the most rewarding part of it. Mm -hmm. And you also, in that vein, you, uh, profile different other people in the classics. And I wondered what, what that's been like, and has this been like part of a networking effort to, to get everybody in community, uh, or were these people you already knew? Yeah. So it did start, uh, actually the first, the first feature that I did on my blog was someone that I did not know. Actually, um, I used, I actually, um, took the, the list of people who replied to my initial thread, um, asking for, you know, people of color to, to just reply and like share what they were interested in and like what, um, like where they were at in their program or, you know, what, what have you, um, in classics, um, archeology, span Egyptology, ancient history. Like I tried to cover all of my bases. Cause I, that's another thing that we've, that's been under a lot of discussion is like, what is classic classical studies? Um, you know, how do we define kind of the parameters of it? Should it, should it just be Greece and Rome or should we be opening up, opening it up, um, more so those, um, so I tried to be as inclusive as I could, but actually the very first feature that I did on my blog, um, was an undergraduate who her name is Maya. Um, and she ran also a podcast, but it was a very like intermittent one, um, at the beginning of the, the pandemic. And she had just, I mean, she just replied to the, the, the thread and I, I created a spreadsheet and I just kind of did a random number generator and she was the first one. And I, I really, um, I really enjoyed, uh, I, I mean, I enjoy everyone's, um, feature so much, but I also really wanted to make sure that I was representing people from all levels. Um, because I think, especially for me, like when I was an undergrad, there was no one else around me that looked like me. And I think it's helpful to like, see people that are at your level, um, and be able to see like, okay, this is how they got here. This is where they want to go. And it's possible, um, for me to also do that. And yeah, so some of the people that I've featured are people that I know, um, personally, but most of them are people that I, I don't know. And I, I, 
was intentional about that because I didn't want it to just be like a string of just people I knew I had to I mean it, it has been hard like I do like helping people but I'm also a real introvert and I even if it's on the computer like I like struggle like trying to reach out to somebody so it's been um, a challenge but it's also been really exciting because every person that I've I've reached out to has been really um, happy to contribute um, and I and I wish that I could compensate um, every single person that uh, has contributed and that will hopefully contribute in the future. But alas, I am a graduate student and I, it's kind of outside of my means, but hopefully sometime um, in the future that will be possible. But I think, I think at this point there have been eight, um, I want to say, um, features that I've done. I try to do one every month, but I've, I've found that on top of everything else that I have going on in my life, um, I have to sometimes take like whole months off um, just to like re recharge and, and re restart my brain. Um, so, um, so there have been some gaps uh, over the last year, but, you know, I try um, to, to do one every, every month in addition to like my regular um, posts. So that that's, it's helpful in that it, it uh, kind of breaks up breaks up the the work for me because they write um, their own posts. Um, but it's also really, I think, useful. And I've, I've gotten lovely messages and emails from people um, are not um, BIPOC, um, Black, Indigenous, or people of color that have said that they really appreciated, you know, the representation and and being exposed to the, the these people in our field. So hopefully it will continue. And um, yeah, I really love um, doing it. And it looks really impressive. So I, I was poking around and um, it's a very cool website. I encourage my listeners to, to go check it out. And I think you also have a Patreon page. So if you want to help, if my listeners want to boost that, uh, then that'll work towards uh, compensating all of your writers. Mm-hmm. So what if, what's been your favorite part of your archaeological work? And then what's been your favorite part of uh, running your blog? Oh, good, good question. I think for my for running my blog, I've really loved reading about other people's experiences with um, coming to to classics and also just like reading about. Um, I always ask my contributors to talk about something that they would like to change about the um, the field, and everybody's uh, had a very different perspective on um, what they would change, and I think it's really nice to to hear from people that I don't usually like see um, commenting on um, things very publicly or you know even just different ways of of expressing uh, what they would change because you know there are some people that are very like fiery and like you know tear you know burn everything down um, I laugh I, I say this because um, because that was a big conversation um, for many months um, it felt like it kept coming up over and over and over again um, <laughs> every couple of weeks um, this idea of burning the entire field down and I was I mean I was a part of this conversation on Twitter um, and beyond um, and there is an uh, an interesting list of of kind of all of the contributions to that conversation, both, you know, on both sides of it by, I think, uh, rogue class, uh, classicist.com. Um, uh, it's, it's just, it's very interesting. Um, this, this conversation about burning classics down and like, whether like people are being, you know, <laughs> being unreasonable or not. Um, and really a lot of those calls, um, to burn it, burn it all down were, from people of color because, you know, the structures are what are um, the problem. Um, and I think we've we've kind of moved past that. Um, it, it was a little bit radical and I, I was very much on board for a while. And I think now it's kind of mellowed out a little bit and we're thinking about more realistic uh, solutions. But uh, like I said, I, I really enjoy um, seeing where, where different people are coming from and also, you know, how they got to, to studying classics or archaeology or Egyptology, Egyptology or anything, you know, it's, it's interesting to, to hear about their journeys because we all come from different backgrounds and we have, all have different interests. And then um, for archaeology, I think my favorite part of, of our, my archaeological research kind of unexpectedly has been learning modern Greek. I took three semesters of modern Greek and I, I mostly did it because I, I was coming up on, on my candidacy, um, in my, my program. And I 
started, I was starting to think about, oh, I have to go to, to Greece to do my research and I have to be on, be there on my own. And I mean, I had been there many times, many summers before, um, you know, working on a field project. So I was around other people spoke English. So it was pretty easy. And I mean, it's pretty easy to navigate the city um, in Athens and also to get to um, Olympus. But I, I started to really think about improving my communication skills in, in modern Greek, um, especially so that I could talk to um, my colleagues and, and museum staff um, in Greece when I eventually go there for my research because I have been planning to do that for two years and it hasn't happened. Um, but I still, I mean, I still... Um, I'm still on Duolingo. I think my streak now is like 580 days. So I'm really going strong. Um, but I mean, it, I I just want to, because I was having this conversation, I think two weeks ago in a, um, a seminar that I was invited to for first year students in my, my department. And something I really want to emphasize is if you're going to do any study, I mean, if it's classics, if it's archaeology, if it's anthropology in another country, you know, if it's history and you're going to another country to use the archives, like I really, really would encourage you to learn the language of the place that you're going to and like actually be able to communicate with the people there and learn something about their their culture. Because something that is also talked about a lot is like the colonialism, um, the, the colonist, colonial <laughs> words are hard, um, the colonial nature of classics in particular and history and, you know, various departments that kind of rely on, um, on the history of other countries and, and archaeology is a pretty big one. Um, and I, I think about this a lot, you know, especially with like first, first, time archaeologists go into a field school and like they know no, no Greek and they just kind of assume that everyone is going to speak English to them and like don't even try to learn any of the language I think is really problematic so if you have the means and the time I would strongly encourage even just a semester even just I mean Duolingo isn't great for um for learning like communication or grammar but like it's it's I think sufficient for learning some vocab and some basic some basic phrases so um yeah I really encourage people to learn modern Greek in particular if you're going to Greece but you know the language of whatever country you're you're studying I'm also thinking of like feta and honey and uh <laughs> I would love to eat Greek food is where my mind has gone which maybe Same. means it is time for me to eat <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. Are, are there any other um, kind of thoughts you want to share? Any um, any handles you want to plug uh, before we go? Sure. Um, yeah, I I mentioned this briefly earlier, but um, Notes from the Apatheki is about to celebrate or is currently celebrating its one year anniversary. Yay. Um, I can't believe that this is the longest commitment that I've probably made besides my <laughs> my degree, but, um, so it's a really exciting time and I'm, um, we're currently on a break this month because I like just, it's the end of the year and my brain is, is a little bit fried, um, from trying to finish my dissertation. But yeah, if you are interested in, in subscribing to the blog and, and keeping up to date on what's going on with the blog, um, you can go uh, to my website, notesfromtheapotheke.com. Apotheke is A-P-O-T-H-E-K-E. And then you can also um, follow the blog on Twitter and Instagram at Apotheke blog. Um, so it's um, A-P-O-T-H-E-K-E. B-L-O-G, just one word. And then Elle mentioned the the Patreon. I did um, just briefly, for a brief time, deactivate it, but once, because there was, you know, no one interacting with it. So I was like, maybe this is not, not a great idea, but I will, I will be um, reactivating it um, just to, to give it another chance. Um, so it would be really, really helpful to me. And I would feel really great if I um, could compensate the people that are contributing to the blog. Really, it doesn't, I do not care so much if I'm getting money, but if I could give money um, to the people that are, you know, giving their time um, and, and sharing um, their experiences, that would be really, really helpful. So um, I will go and, and reactivate the Patreon so that you can, you can contribute if you want as little or as much as you want. Um, and you can get some extra goodies and um, stay up to date um, in that way. So um, the link to that will be on my blog as well. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on. We're really excited to have you. Thank you so much for inviting me.